So we're starting a brand new sermon series today called Called Out, about what the church is, who the church is, what the church does. And before we get into the teaching of the series and explanation of it, I want you to know this series really fits together like a puzzle. Um, You're going to see all the parts of the series continue to build on what has already been spoken in the past sermons. So I encourage you to be here for all six weeks of this series, uh, because the whole thing fits together like one beautiful puzzle. Now the series, series is called Called Out, which is actually a play on words. Um, the Greek word, ekklesia, which is translated into English as church, is really the combination of two Greek words. The two Greek words are ek and klesia. Ek being the prefix that means out of, and klesia being the noun form of the verb to call. So literally, you could say the ekklesia, the church, is the called out ones which is a pretty good description of the church. The church are the ones who are set apart, segregated, extracted from their old way of life and put into a new community with new priorities and new passions. It's a pretty apt description of what the church is. But the phrase called out in English also has an English connotation. You know, if you've ever seen an athlete say about another player on his team, that guy doesn't work very hard, or his heart's not in it, he's calling him out, right? Or if maybe a celebrity says something mean about another celebrity on Instagram, she's calling her out. In English, the idea of calling out has the idea of being called to account, being pointed out, having the spotlight put on you, and being asked, why are you doing what you're doing? And so the hope of this series is twofold. First of all, that it would call us out that it would call us out for the ways that we have ignored what the Bible has clearly taught about what the church is, what the church does. But secondly, that it will also empower us to see what a community of called out people could be by God's grace. So we're going to teach two things today. Uh, Those two things are big points. They're going to take the whole sermon, um, but they're essential if we're going to understand the rest of this series. So those two questions are who is the church and what is the church? Who is the church and what is the church? Um, So first, who is the church? Uh, To answer that question, we have to define terms. Um, Because when I say church, you can think of a couple different things, especially if you were paying attention during the children's message. The church can mean multiple things. So I try to distinguish between the two different things the word church can mean by using one with a capital C and one with a lowercase c. Or sometimes I'll call them the Big C Church and the Little C Church. These are your first two fill-in-the-blanks if you're taking notes with us. Uh, The Little C Church is the local congregation. So Cross of Life is a Little C Church. There are many Little C Churches. You see them as you drive maybe to your commute or to the grocery store. They're not just individual congregations, though. They're also church bodies and denominations. There are literally hundreds of thousands of Little C Churches churches. They're sometimes called the visible church. So like when someone sees the Cross of Life logo or they show up at Lisgar Middle School at 1030 on a Sunday morning, they see visibly the church. Now the big C church is the holy Christian church. That's what you confess when you say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the holy Christian church, the communion of saints. There is only one holy Christian church. And it's sometimes called the invisible church because it's not based on a geographic location, a certain building, a certain denomination. It's those who believe in Jesus, those who are Christians, 
who trust in who Jesus is to save them from their sins. So how do you know if your little C church is part of the big C church? I think one of the best ways to explain this is what Martin Luther said in his small catechism. He said that the holy Christian church is found where the gospel is preached and the sacraments are used. The holy Christian church is where the gospel is preached and the sacraments are used. Now you know, if you know anything about many different little C churches, that that actually qualifies a great number of them. Even if they don't believe everything the same way we do, if they have some misunderstandings or some false beliefs about what the Bible says, if the gospel is preached there and the sacraments are used, then the holy Christian church can exist there. Because what saves a person is not pure doctrine. What saves a person is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can know that there aren't just going to be Lutherans in heaven. There are also going to be members of other churches and other church bodies so long as they believe the gospel and receive the sacraments. Now, it's important that we have pure doctrine because we don't want anything to cloud that gospel message which Jesus preached to us when he said, go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. You see both those things there, right? The sacraments that Jesus say make disciples and the teaching of everything that he has commanded us that keeps them in that faith that they were given at their baptism. But we should also understand that just because your church preaches the gospel, administers the sacraments, and might have pure doctrine, that does not necessarily mean that you are part of the big C church. In fact, if we believe what Jesus said in his parable of the wheat and the weeds, we would have to conclude that there are people in every Christian little C church who are not part of the big C church. They are those who, like Jesus said, will say on the last day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons? And he will say to them, go away from me, I never knew you. And that should make us a little bit uncomfortable. But it should also teach us something. That the little C church is not what matters the most. What matters more than our little C church is the big C church that we are part of. That we bring people into by the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments. We aren't here just to build up cross of life. We're here to build up the holy Christian church by the preaching of the gospel. Now, if you're still wondering about that whole thing of, can I be in the little C church but not in the big C church? The text that we actually read gives us a really good explanation of what a person who is in the big C church looks like. That's why we're proving this point, who is the church. Um, If you look at the text with me, it's going to teach us what is your first fill in the blank. Sorry, first fill in the blank under three characteristics of a person in the big C church. That person has faith. Uh, The text tells it to us like this. Chapter 1, verse 22, it says, You have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Uh, Now, some of you who have been with us during our sermons or our Bible study series during the summer on John 14 to 17 have heard me say this a couple times. Um, But obey here is probably a weak translation for us. Uh, Not because it's an invalid translation, but obey in our English parlance has kind of a connotation of doing stuff. That we have to actually do the actions that have been commanded to us. When the Greek word really has more of an idea of compliance. I accept that. Or maybe if you're married or have kids, you understand this. The difference between hearing and really listening, right? Where someone can have their eardrums vibrating because of the words that you're saying, but they're not really listening. Obeying the message, that's really listening. 
It's not just letting the words bounce off your head, but letting them go deep into who you are because you believe them. But there's an even clearer place where this text says it. Chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. One of the distinguishing factors of a person part of the large C church is that they have faith. But that's not enough. Because you can have faith in a lot of things. And you can have a false idea of what faith is. In fact, in our North American culture, oftentimes faith is considered this sort of positive feeling towards stuff. Like you're, you're in the hospital and you've got an injury of some sort and someone says, well, you just got to have faith that you're going to get through. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean I just have to feel good about it and hope it's going to get better? That's not going to save you. And the text tells us that. It says that, that your faith has to be in something very specific. Look at these verses. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9. It says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Verse 2.10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Chapter 1.23 says, you, are, um, you were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. That teaches us that our faith has to be in something very specific. And that very specific thing is your next fill in the blank. That you are chosen by God, by grace, and born again. Chosen by God, by grace, and born again. Let's break down each one of those things. First of all, it says you are chosen. You are a chosen people, the text tells us. You notice what it doesn't say? It doesn't say you are a choice people. Because if you were a choice people, it would be because there's something good about you something attractive, something with potential. You maybe have higher moral standards or are kinder to the people around you. But the text doesn't say that. It says you are a chosen people. God did not choose you because of something good in you. He chose you because of something good in him. And in the same way that maybe you felt when you were in high school and that boy asked you to dance, or that moment when he got down on one knee, or when she subsequently said yes, God has chosen you in a far more profound, more, far more transcosmic way. He's made you saved from your sin. Not because of your own works, but because of his grace. Which he explains to you by saying that at one time you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know who needs mercy, right? Offenders. People who deserve to be punished need mercy. And we deserve to be punished because we have harmed our neighbor and offended God again and again by our selfishness and our thoughts and our words and our actions, just like we confess today. Our actions, thoughts, and words are not just against the people around us. They are against God. God set a way that we should live in this world, and we have violated it. And we should receive what he says is the punishment for that, which is our death, not just physically, but eternally. And yet, we have received mercy. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ died in the death that we should have died. He was separated from God like we should have been separated from God. And now we are not separate from God. We are the ones who are made holy by the blood of Jesus. Again, not because of something we've done, but because of Christ's mercy. And finally, he describes this whole process as being born again. 
You know why he uses the metaphor of born again? How many of you chose to get born? How many of you chose to be conceived? Absolutely none of you. And if you think you do, come talk to, talk to me afterwards. God uses this metaphor to teach us something very specific about how you come to faith in him. It's not your choice. It's not your effort. It's his action upon you. If you think you sought out God, you're mistaken. God sought you out far before you ever started looking for him. You think you found God? God found you far before you ever found him. God brought you into his family not by your own choice or your own effort, but by his choice and effort. Do you believe this? This makes you part of the Big C Church. Faith in this saves you. But that's not all the text tells us. It tells us one more characteristic of someone who is in the Big C Church. And we get it from these verses. Chapter 1, verse 23, 22 excuse me, says, Love one another deeply from the heart. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And 2, verse 9 says, That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now notice, being part of the church is by faith. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that chose you by grace and bore you again. But then that faith is accompanied by a life change. If you're taking notes, that's your next fill in the blank. The third characteristic of someone in the Big C Church is their life changes. They start to rid themselves of envy and malice and slander and hypocrisy. They start to reevaluate their life with different priorities, seeing people not as things to be extracted from, but as things to give to. They see their life not as a chance to get as much as they can for themselves, but as a chance to give as much as they can to others. They begin to love one another deeply, from the heart, not to get something out of them, but to give. And then they start declaring the praises of him who called them out of darkness. They show up in places like this and sing, holy, holy, holy. His name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this is not what saves you but it is a perfect indicator of whether you're part of the Big C Church or not. It's kind of like an apple tree. Like an apple tree is an apple tree whether it's producing apples or not. But if you have an apple tree that's not producing apples, the odds are it's dead. And in the same way, Christians produce good works. Their lives change. It's not that they don't think they're a Christian. It's not that they don't show up at the right times to do the Christian-y things. But if they're not producing the fruit of a changed life, then it could be that they're dead. Is this your life? Do you have faith that Jesus saved you? And have you seen life change in your relationships, your actions, your thoughts and words? Then you're part of the Big C Church. That is what the text tells us is what it means to be part of the Big C Church. Now, you might be wondering, why spend so much time on who the Big C Church is? And the big reason is because you have to know that in order to understand the next point of the sermon. But I do think we need to reevaluate our understanding of church. We need to see church not as merely a building with a steeple, but as all the people. 
the church is people. People who believe this message, who believe that Jesus chose them by grace, made them born again, who have seen the changes in their life, and they love it. So that's who the church is. Now, what is the church? Sociologists say that every human organization exists on a spectrum. They trend to be either a movement or an institution. Now, just to give you some framework for this, we're going to go through some characteristics of each. The first characteristic of an institution is that it is top-down. There is leadership, hierarchical leadership, at the top of the organization that make decisions for the people below them in the organization. Second characteristic is that it's structured. There are usually job descriptions, people who are supposed to do certain things at certain times. There are people who are organized to be part of forces and groups, and action items are put in place. Institutions are also very static and hard to change. They are often built on a system that isn't supposed to change unless there are amendments with two-thirds majority. And they do that because they have a, holding, a focus on the past. Institutions are built to hold on to something good that existed at one point that they don't want to lose. Now let me give you an example of an institution. The government of Canada. Right? The government of Canada has top-down leadership. Even though we are a democracy, we elect leaders to give us top-down rules and changes. It's super-structured. There are ministers of all these different things. They all uh, report up, and they make changes as they're allowed in their structure. Right? And the government of Canada, though there are things that change about it regularly, is relatively hard to change. And that's because the government was set up in a way to hold on to something that it had in the past. The ideal of what this country could be is a place for people to be free, for immigrants to come in and to have a life. And that's a really good thing. That's what the government was set up to be, an institution. Now let's look at a movement. Four characteristics of a movement. You can imagine they're the opposite, right? The first characteristic is that it's grassroots or bottom-up. That there is no leader on top of all of it, but each person is pulling in the same direction. The second characteristic is that it's fluid and unstructured. There aren't meetings or job descriptions or action items or three or ten-year goals. It's just every person doing what they can to make the movement go forward. And because of that, it's constantly changing. There isn't an ideal that everyone is striving for. They have their own versions of the ideal, and as they push generally in the same direction, things change. And there's no structure to hold on to what it used to be at one point. And finally, it's focused on changing the future. Instead of looking at the past and holding on to the past, it looks forward to what the future could be if we all pulled in the same direction. I think you can think of some famous movements of our time too, right? How about the hashtag MeToo movement? A movement that was built to bring uh, attention to sexual abuse cases of men in high positions of authority on women who were under their authority. There was no leader of that movement. There's no one person who stood up and said, I'm in charge. No, it was every woman pulling in the same direction, typing in hashtag me too. And it was fluid and unstructured. There weren't times that everyone was supposed to type in their tweets or their Instagram posts. People just did it as they felt the need. And it was constantly changing. 
It started as being something for men in authority over women in authority, but then it became part of family life, and men were included as those who had been abused. The movement was constantly changing, and it was focused on the future, to a world where people didn't take advantage of other people sexually, regardless of their position in their life. So here's the question. Is the church an institution or a movement? Is the church an institution or a movement? Before you answer, because I'm guessing many of you have never thought that question before in your life, we're going to do a little test to help you figure out what subconsciously you already think about the church and whether it should be a movement or an institution. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you you think to yourself, do I believe this or not? Do you believe that the most important thing to a church is holding on to its doctrine? Do you believe that things should not be changed in your church unless you give your approval or at least are made aware of the change? Do you believe that the best way to bring someone to know Jesus is to bring them to church on Sunday? Do you believe that the pastor is the one who should be doing the most outreach work in the congregation? Do you believe that a good sermon is one that challenges you intellectually? Do you believe that the church is for you to come and be filled up? Do you believe that the church should offer things that serve you and your family at your current stage of life? If you thought yes to any of these, then you subconsciously think the church is an institution. Let's keep going. You know where this is going, but play along with me. Do you believe that the most important thing a church does is preach the gospel? Do you believe that churches should set aside their differences and work together more often? Do you believe that the pastor is more of an organizer than a final authority on matters of the church? Do you believe that a good sermon is one that stirs your emotions and makes you feel like you could run through a wall for Jesus? Do you believe that the church should abandon anything that hinders new people from coming in the doors? Do you believe that each individual should be finding a place in their life where they can live the gospel rather than just directing people to talk to their pastor? If you thought yes to any of those, then you believe the church is a movement. Now some of you are thinking, hold on. I think yes to things in both categories. And others of you are thinking, hold on, aren't there really good biblical things in both categories? You're right. The answer is yes. The church should be both an institution and a movement. And the Bible tells us this in this text and shows us that to be both is actually to be the most unique organization on the face of the earth. Not just another human organization, but a human organization started by Jesus for a very specific purpose. So we're going to go through both of these, that the church is both an institution and a movement. We're going to start by talking about how the church is an institution. Um, Three points to this come out in the text. The first of those is that... um, excuse me, that that Peter calls us a royal priesthood, a nation. You know what royal priesthood and nation words are? They're institutional words, right? Kings are kings of kingdoms, and kingdoms tend to be in the same spot. They don't move. They do the same thing. Priests 
are part of priesthoods which, priesthoods which operate at temples which are in the same place and those priests do the same thing every day. And nations tend to be in the same spot on the ground, governed by a government which does the same thing every day. It's structured, it's static, it's focused on holding on to something that already exists. And second, Peter is using all sorts of Old Testament scripture to prove this to us. In fact, if you look closely at the text, he has six quotes of Old Testament scripture in this short text in his letter. He's teaching us something, that this structural organization, this institution is holding on to something from the past. The words that were written down for us by the prophets about the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. And that those things do not change. That those things are always true. That God, who inspired those prophets to write those words, is still saying the same thing. That we don't have the right to just go off and do whatever we want. We are going to preach the same doctrine, the same scriptures that the church has preached for literally thousands of years. But there's a third point, and I think it's the most interesting and most directly applicable to your life. And it's your next fill in the blank if you're taking notes with us. You cannot live the Christian life apart from the institution. You cannot live the Christian life apart from the institution. Notice the text tells us, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, making, uh, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter says, you are a living stone built into a spiritual house. What is he saying? He's saying that the church, the institution, is made up of people. In the same way that a house is built by putting stones on top of stones, the church is built by putting people on top of people. And you know that when stones are put into a wall, some of the stones support certain stones and are supported by other stones, which is a picture of the church, right? There are those in our church who you need to support and those who are being supported by you and those who you look to for support at certain times of your life. That's the picture Jesus wants us to have in our minds. That we are like a house built together. And that if one of us were to fall out of the wall, suddenly the structural integrity of what we are as a church would be compromised. Now this teaches us something about our group dynamic, doesn't it? Every single person in the church is valuable. In fact, indispensable. To say it, it would be better if that person just wasn't around. Or if they stopped being so involved. To say that is to hate God's institution of the church. To see one living stone is not valuable enough to put in the wall. It also means that if you see someone in our church who is not being supported, not being loved, not being talked to or engaged or included, you can expect that they will do exactly what a rock does when it's not put into the wall. It'll fall. Our call as the church is to understand ourselves as one big unit of individual unique parts, constantly supporting and being supported by each other. But this has a deeper implication for us. Paul, or Peter is actually making a huge point about what the church is supposed to be and how it connects to its past. When he was writing this, he would have definitely been thinking of these words from Exodus chapter 19. This is God talking to Moses after Moses has led the people out of slavery in Egypt. 
God says to Moses, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Sound familiar? No doubt Peter is alluding to this text when he says, You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, God's special possession. Now, you know what happens right after this text in Exodus? God comes down. God comes down in a dense cloud on the Mount Sinai, and the rocks are shaken. The glory of God is so present in that spot that Moses has to tell the people, you can't even go near the mountain or you will die. In fact, keep all your animals away too because they'll probably die. And that same glory that God had when he was brought down into that mountain was transferred then to the tabernacle, which was sort of the Israelites' traveling tent-like temple, eventually into the permanent temple built in Jerusalem, until one day a man who was also God said, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days, speaking about his body. And now the crazy thing is that Jesus says, you, the church, are his body. So the same glory that was on the mountain, that was in the tabernacle, that was in the temple, was in the body of Jesus, now inhabits the spiritual house of the church. So when the church gathers together, God comes down. Now this has huge implications for us. Because we as North Americans tend to think we can be Christian without the church. That I don't have to go to church, or at least don't have to go that often, I don't have to insert myself into a community of Christians, a little C church, because I can get in touch with God without church. And if I may be very blunt with you, you're wrong. No, you can't. You cannot live the Christian life apart from the institution. And I'm going to give you four points of why you cannot do that. The first of those is that sometimes people will say, well, Jesus lives in my heart So I don't need to go to church to get in touch with Jesus because Jesus lives in me. And that's not wrong. The Bible does say that Jesus has inhabited you. But the scripture at almost a nine-to-one ratio speaks about you being in Jesus rather than Jesus being in you. Which changes the narrative, right? It's not about you taking Jesus wherever you want to go. It's about you along for the ride wherever Jesus wants to go. And how do you get into Jesus' body, like the scripture says nine times to one? Well, scripture tells you very clearly. This is from Ephesians chapter one. God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. You want to be in the body of Jesus? You want to be in Jesus like the scripture says you should be? Then be in the church. Second point. How are you supposed to know the Bible if you're not part of a church? I suppose you could take the Bible off to yourself in your bedroom and read it and try to figure it out. But if you think that, then I got some lifelong Christians I want you to meet who are still terrified to read the Bible. Because they're not always sure what's going on when Jesus speaks or when the prophets speak or when the apostles speak. But the beauty of being part of a church is that the church is built to give you the repository of information that the church has gleaned from the scriptures for thousands of years. Not just through the one man who was called to be the pastor of this congregation, but the fact that his education and his resources 
go through all sorts of theologians, pastors, composers, and poets for literally the last 6,000 years. And that repository of information is at your disposal in the church. You will never be able to go as deep or as far into the scripture as you can in the church. Point number three. You cannot live the one another sections of the scripture without a church. You notice the text said it very clearly to us, said love one another deeply from the heart, right? But you know that's not the only one another text in the Bible. Besides love one another, there's forgive one another, serve one another, pray for one another. If you don't have any one another's, how are you going to fulfill these scriptures? You cannot live the Christian life apart from the institution. And this text right here actually implies a deep connection with that institution. Right? Love one another deeply from the heart. You can love a lot of people, but there are only so many people you can love deeply, and it's because you're spending time with them and knowing them. Fourth point. There is a certain uniqueness to being in the house of God with God's people. To be here on a Sunday morning and hear the sermon preached to you, to sing the songs with the other Christians who are part of this congregation, and to stand up and say together, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I'm not worthy of God's grace. And yet I know he forgives me. You can't get that if you're listening online or watching a video or listening to a podcast. I think of it a lot like if you were a child and your parents said in order to go to bed you have to listen to this recording of another dad reading a bedtime story to his kids. The words would be the same, but the human connection wouldn't be there. In the same way, you can listen to my sermons online. You can listen to a lot of pastors' sermons online. But knowing that I'm looking you in the eye, knowing that every time I write a sermon, I think about five to ten families in our congregation and say, what does this text say to that specific family? You're not going to get that unless you're here. And some people might say it's psychological, right? It's just the, the idea of being in an atmosphere. Okay, fine. Who created your mind? God. So his theology should probably work with your psychology, right? Here's the point. You can't live the Christian life apart from the institution. Now I'm going to press this into you, and maybe it's going to hurt a little bit. This means you can't skip church. This means every Sunday is a priority. I realize sometimes you're sick. I realize sometimes you're out of town. But to despise the institution, to despise coming here to hear God's word, is to say, I don't care if God is coming down. I've got better things to do. And so I'm challenging you to be here for six weeks of this sermon series, but ultimately I'm challenging you to make Sunday morning a priority every week because the scripture says so. And you can't live the Christian life apart from the institution. The text, uh, the text that we read earlier actually gives us a really good example of how this can be a really positive thing, right? You know what Isaiah was doing when God showed up and his train filled the temple and there were seraphim with six wings singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty? He was going to church. He was in the temple just like he would have been most days. In fact, there's an old preacher who said, Isaiah went to the temple that day and the last person he expected to see was God but God showed up. 
And when God showed up, an amazing change happened in Isaiah's life, right? He was going about his mundane business, but all of a sudden, as that coal touched his lips, he was able to say, here am I, send me to possibly the worst pastoral call in the history of the world. Did you hear what God told Isaiah he was going to do? Preach to people for decades, knowing that none of them would listen. Until all the people fell away from your church, Isaiah, keep preaching this. And Isaiah says, I'll do it. Why? Because God showed up. Because he realized how evil he was and yet how gracious God was when that coal touched his lips. He knew he was an unclean man and part of a people of unclean lips and yet he was made holy by Jesus' work. You can't experience that anywhere but here. But the church isn't only an institution. It is also a dynamic movement. The text tells us that uh, we are a royal priesthood. Remember that, Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Do you realize how radical that would have been for him to say when he first wrote those words? At that time, every single religion in the world basically operated the same way. There were the people, there was the deity, and then there were the spiritual elites who made it possible to reach the deity. You called them priests, you called them something else. Essentially, you had to go through these people to get to whatever you thought God was. Every pagan religion was like this, and in fact, the Old Testament Christians were like this, right? So when Peter steps up and says, yeah, you guys now, you're the royal priests, he would have been flipping every religion in the world on its head, saying there are no longer any spiritual elites because God has made us a spiritual priesthood. And that means, first of all, that the church is not about me or about our leaders or really even about you as an individual. It's about the dynamic movement of a nation of priests who do what the priests always did. You remember? They were the ones who would dispense forgiveness to the people. The people would show up at the temple and say, here are my sins, and the priest would sacrifice an animal and say, you are forgiven. Well, now that's your job. It's your responsibility to be priests to the people in your life. Some of them are Christians. Some of them aren't. Some of them, you might be the only priest in their life, the only person who will dispense this gracious message of God's forgiveness to them. That's what Peter calls you to. Let me, th- let me tell it to you a different way. We're going to spend two weeks on this concept, so I'm not going to throw it all to you right now, but I'm just going to whet your appetite a little bit. The church is not about you. And the church is not ultimately for you. The church is a group of people empowered to go out and be priests to the world, to find those areas in their life where they can dispense forgiveness to people. Just think of it like, well, like the other famous movements you know today. Not just the Me Too movement, but think of Black Lives Matter, for example, or the LGBTQ plus movement. I'm not speaking about the, the validity of those movements or their merits in either way, but just think about how they operate. They don't wait for the government or the elites to tell them when to go. They just go. All of them pulling in the same direction, regardless of what the consequences might be for them, willing to stand up, step out, and speak up about what they believe to be true. And you see how it's changed our world, right? 
we have a different appreciation for those issues that they're talking about because they were willing to be a movement. Church, you can be a movement. The text tells you you are royal priests able to dispense forgiveness, able to do something that those movements can never do. Let's bring mercy. Those movements stand up and demand justice. They yell and scream for something they want made right. But we have something far more beautiful. We have the message of forgiveness and mercy from God. That there is nothing to be made right. You have already been made right. Despite who you are, despite what your sexual orientation or your skin color is, you're forgiven. You were once not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is a movement. But here's what you already know. You already know that that's hard. I bet there has never been a pastor who has stood up in front of you and said, you know what we need to do, people? We need to slow down and make a whole bunch more structure because we're not institutional enough. I'm sure every pastor who stood up here and talked about these issues has said, congregation, you're the church. You're the priesthood. Go out and be that priesthood. But it's hard. And we know what our next fill-in-the-blank says, that the Christian life calls you to move, but we kind of want to stay where we are. And there's a really good reason for that. It's safe. It's safe to be an institution. Institutions at all costs survive. They will cut off anything that keeps them from surviving. They won't lay it out all on the line. They'll guard their assets and make sure no one can attack them. And generally, as movements start to slow down, they become institutional. You can look back at history and see examples of this. It is the natural tendency of humans to make institutions. So how are we going to be both an institution and a movement? We're going to need God to come down. We're going to need God to show up and show us something that we cannot get anywhere else. To change our hearts so that even if the call was go preach until everyone falls away, we would say, here am I, send me. And so Peter sticks that message right at the end of this text for you. Do you remember what he said? He said, once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Every Old Testament Christian who would have read that text would have known what Old Testament story Peter was referencing. He was looking back to the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Do you remember Hosea's story? Hosea was called by God to be an example of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to them. So God called Hosea and said, Hosea, I need you to go marry a prostitute and have children with her. She's going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to leave you and cheat on you with other men. But I want you to bring her back into your household and love her like she was your wife. And so Hosea did. He went off and found a prostitute and married her and had two children with her. And as the second one was born, the Bible tells us this. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. See, what was happening in a small way in Hosea's life is what God was doing on a massive scale in the church. 
those who were unfaithful, who have seen other things as more valuable than God, God has said, I will bring you back. I will marry you. I will love you. I will keep you. I will protect you. I will treat you as my special possession. Do any of you have a prized possession? How do you treat that prized possession? Do you think about it regularly? Do you put it in a special place? Do you buy things to protect it or insure it? Do you spend time with it? That's what God does with you, but even more. He protects you. He loves you. He puts you in a special place. He knows where you are at all times. And when he sees you, his eyes light up. Because despite your sin, you are his special possession. Once you were not his people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So from this beautiful foundation of the institution that God has put in place of the church, let's go be a movement. Amen.